0: Hi, everyone. This is Alex West, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. Today's guest is Mark Cuban. Mark is the founder and lead investor in the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, a generic pharmaceutical distributor that, as a rule, prices medications at cost, plus a 15% administrative markup and any relevant pharmacy and shipping fees, hence Cost Plus Drugs. Founded in early 2022, Over 1.7 million patients have signed up for the service in their first year, and Cost Plus Drugs now offers over 1,000 generic medications for purchase on their website. Mark co-founded the company with CEO Dr. Alex Oshmayansky, a pediatric radiologist who originally tried to start an organization similar to Cost Plus Drugs as a nonprofit before pivoting and convincing Mark to be his partner. Mark's first major business endeavor, Broadcast.com, enabled audio streaming on the internet and was sold to Yahoo in 1999 for $5.7 billion. Of course, these days, Mark is best known for his role as an investor on the ABC program, Shark Tank, and as owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. He currently owns stakes in entertainment companies, Magnolia Pictures and AXS TV, as well as dozens of other startups in a broad range of industries. In this episode, I spoke with Mark about his journey to starting Cost Plus Drugs, how the company is able to drive down prices so drastically compared to the existing players, and how the incumbents, such as pharmacy benefit managers, and new entrants, such as Amazon's RxPass, will impact the success of Cost Plus Drugs. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mark, thank you for joining me on the Pulse Podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So we have a little tradition of asking our guests this icebreaker. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a basketball player. <laughs> Shocking, right? <laughs> I think that tracks. I think you got probably a lot closer than most kids growing up with that ambition.
1: Yeah. Um, and not in the way I ever expected to. So, it, you know, all's well that ends well. Mark, I'd love to hear
0: from your start in the technology industry, tell me about your path to starting the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company.
1: I don't want to bore people going way back, but I've always been in the technology industry since I graduated from Indiana in one form or the other, and started off in software, got fired from a software company or more of a retail software company, started my own company, Micro Solutions. taught myself to code, wrote code for seven years, did systems integration, distributed database applications and sold that to H&R Block and then took some time off then started the streaming industry with a company called AudioNet that turned into broadcast.com that we sold to Yahoo that you know that got me you know even further along with technology bought the mavs you know started invested in a lot of other companies and then fast forward to about 2016 2017 I started getting into healthcare and this is when the republicans were saying they were going to overturn the affordable care act And Texas is a Republican base, so talking to people in the party, I was like, well, what are you going to replace it with? And they had nothing. And so they're like, well, you got any ideas? And so I funded some studies looking at different ways to pay for healthcare, looking at a variety of comparisons to other healthcare systems that just got me deeper into that rabbit hole. And then, gosh, was 2019, give or take, I got a cold email from a doctor by the name of Dr. Alice Oshmiansky. And he had a compounding pharmacy in Denver that he was doing where basically he was saying that there were a lot of generic drugs that they could make that could cut the price of generics significantly. And I'm like, so you're saying if a pharma bro can raise the price 7,500%, then obviously the market is inefficient, so there must be an opportunity to cut the price as well. And that led to the formation of Cost Plus. and it took us a few years to get all the I's dotted, T's crossed and all the software done. But on January 19th, 2022, we launched costplusdrugs.com.
0: So you get this cold email. You have an expert in the space. They clearly have a vision for what this can become. Tell me about those first steps. So you get this email. You say, yes, we're going to do this. What did that initial building out that operation look like?
1: A lot of how do you follow all the Florida pharmacy rules? How do you deal with all the regulatory things? And You know, he's brilliant and he had all that down to a science. And so we had to go through all those steps and it took us years to do so just to get to the point where we can launch a a mail order pharmacy. Those basically were the steps. It wasn't that they were complicated, it's just that they were very specific. You must get these cold emails looking
0: for investment all the time. And of course, a huge part of being a great investor is investing in great people and knowing who to invest in. I'd love to better understand, Alex Oshmiansky reaches out. How did he convince you that he was the right person to do this, that you were the right person to fund it, and that that partnership was going to be successful?
1: I just grilled him. Like I do, I've invested a lot in companies, people I've still never met. You know, if you've ever heard of Relativity Space, who just launched a rocket yesterday or the day before that does 3D printers of rockets, they're a $4 billion company if you want to, you know, do their latest funding. And I, inv- I was the first investor and I've still never met them. <laughs> but, you know, Tim and those guys like Alex, I would grill them with questions and they had the answers quickly and directly, no beating around the bush. No, you know, if we only get 1% of the market, which is like a red flag, or, you know, we have lots of smart people, trust us, we're smart, or I have this big board of advisors. So that's all I need. It was none of that. They, they were down in the weeds and, and down and dirty with all the details. And so was Alex. And so every question I asked him, He knew the answer to, you know, and I kept on Googling and trying to teach myself and knowing what I knew already from healthcare and there was no hesitancy. It was like, bam, 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 bam. The only question was how, how could we make it work from a business perspective? Mm -hmm. You know, what were the economics going to be and how can you be a low cost provider? How low can you cost it and how do you market it and how do you make it so that you can keep all those associated costs low because you can't sell at cost plus 15% like we do and be a high-touch, high-cost environment. So working together, I've kind of put the Shark Tank hat on and the marketing hat on and the technology hat on, and we basically came up that you know our differentiation really wasn't just about price. It needed to be transparency because the piece that's missing in healthcare is, isn't so much tech. There's tons of technology. Isn't so much pricing. There's lots of people trying to do it faster, better, cheaper, but there's no transparency. There's no organization that you can go to that, you know, just look, here's my cost and here's my markup and this is how we're able to price so low. And that transparency allowed us to be radically honest with our customers and made us realize that our business was simple. We buy drugs, we sell drugs at at a base. But our product, you know, you always have to know what business you're in. The business we were in is the trust business because, in terms of healthcare, you trust your doctor, hopefully, but nobody really trusts anybody else, anywhere that's associated with the economics of whatever healthcare you need to acquire. Nobody does. You don't trust the hospital. You don't know why you're being charged, what you're charged. You go to the pharmacy. You don't know unless you have great insurance. You don't know what you're paying, and if you're uninsured or underinsured, you're terrified when you walk into a pharmacist. You know the process is the doctor says you need this prescription, and the next question isn't about the economics. It's okay, what pharmacy do you use? And so by being transparent, you know we created the opportunity to define trust. And then we made the decision not to market at all because Alex was all ready to you know, do the MBA thing, right? Okay. Marketing 101 or 501 in, in MBA is, okay, you put together a marketing plan and you, decide, you come up with a budget. You decide where you're going to market and how you're going to decide how to brand it you know, and how transactional you're going to be and how your SEO is going to work, et cetera. And I said, no, Alex, we're not going to spend a penny on marketing. We're not going to have a single marketing person other than me. And all we're going to do is use word of mouth. And he was like, how is that going to work? And I was like, very simple. If we're truly able to save patients money on their prescriptions, I save you $10 even on your generic Synthroid prescription what are you gonna do? You're gonna tell everybody you know, I just saved ten dollars on my generic synthroid, go to costplusdrugs.com, just put in the name of the drug and you know, look and see what the price is compared to what you've previously been paying. Now you extend that to drugs like a matnib, which is a chemotherapy drug. Some people were walking into pharmacies and paying two thousand. To this day, they're paying two thousand dollars or more. You know, now depending on the the strength, you can get as cheap as fourteen dollars from us. The pricing, you know, you see him's and hers you know, and they're charging $3 a pill for a generic Cialis. And, you know, for us, you know, for, for guys of that certain age, right? They're like, <laughs> we'll sell you 90 of them for $8.90 plus shipping and handling. And they're keeping them as M&Ms next to their bed. And what are they going to do? They're telling all their buddies and their wives are telling all their friends. And so that word of mouth is really driving everything that we do particularly if you have a specific disease, you have leukemia and you need to take a matinum. of course you're going to tell everybody. I'll, I'll give you another example. We I had a, a friend who was having to take a drug called droxidopa, which I didn't even know what it was. And we didn't carry it at the time. So a mutual friend of ours reached out and he said, Landon is having to pay $30,000. They're telling him he just lost his insurance. He's going to have to pay $30,000 every three months. And this is a, a guy we know that was in a horrific car crash and is Paralyzed from the neck down. He can't afford it. I'm like, let me check. $30,000 for three months is now $61 a month. And so when that happens, Landon tells everybody, his doctor tells everybody, and we see our orders go straight up. That's how we market. And so, you know, the key for us was knowing what business we were in, understanding that transparency and trust were joined at the hip, and that if you save patients enough money, they're going to tell everybody. I mean,
0: that cost saving is unbelievable. I think it, probably won't surprise people who already work in healthcare that with the right incentives in place your price point can look very very different from an incumbents in the market but can you help me understand what is driving that gap you know what entity is sitting in the middle between you know the buyers that you are using as well on the on the generic manufacturing side and the sellers all the way down to the patient who's in the middle that's playing some part that drives the cost up that much when you're telling me the fraction that you can sell this drug at directly to the consumer is an unbelievably you know small percentage of what uh, is being sold elsewhere
1: so there's a couple things you know and since we're speaking to MBAs we'll, we'll put our MBA hat on right typically when you price a product you price to value what is the value proposition and what is the affordability at that level of value So did the people who are responsible for pricing. They're called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. And so they try to price to value. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, except when you do that, there are people who can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so we priced at cost plus. That means we can't have the bells and whistles. You're not going to have, you know, a famous doctor post on a blog on our site. You're not going to have telehealth. You're not going to have, you know, whatever. It's going to be lean and mean. We don't even have an app. You have to use HTML on our website. But if you're pricing to value, and you know, and that's a big topic right now with specialty drugs, where you're seeing drugs being priced at $1 $3.5 million. Well, they price to value, but part two to that is they know that a big part of their customer base is not going to be able to afford it, and they don't have the type of insurance where the insurer will pay for it. In fact, the insurers are doing everything they can not to pay for those things because it doesn't fit their value proposition. You know, that $3.5 million might keep somebody with hemophilia healthy so they never have to go to the doctor again, but they're not, still not going to ever pay enough in premiums for the insurer to, to make up for that $3.5 million. So you've got that push and pull, if you will, between patient health and economics. And pricing to value there means looking at the total addressable market, looking at the total addressable market and seeing who can actually afford to pay it and the total addressable market as to what insurers, the payers, are actually willing to pay it. And because the percentages of the total addressable market that can afford it are so low, they have to price high. When companies price to value, you're going to get high pricing because most people don't pay for their own medications. You know, They use an insurance company or a third party or employer or whatever. And so that's part one. Part two, the other issue is there are players, particularly the PBMs, That just make the industry, the supply chain and pricing chain opaque. Nobody knows, you know, what happened. What's the line? Nobody knows, but it's provocative, right? You know, (laughs) kind of so whatever it was. in um, the movie, they do everything they can for people not to understand and distort the whole supply chain and distort all the pricing mechanisms. And so what happens is you get multiple prices for a single drug, um, depending on who the insurer is depending on which pharmacy is involved. It's so vertically integrated. You have these companies called pharmacy benefit managers that also own the insurance companies that own the big three retail pharmacy chains that also have other companies that have their their hands in the pot. And so they're able to nickel and dime from all these different directions, all of which with rebates, etc., that increases the price of the medication. We come in and say, nope, if you're going to work with us, there are no rebates. There are no other nickel and dime in us. There's no other third parties that are involved in the pricing of the medication. We're going to buy it. We're going to show our cost. We're going to it up 15% plus you know, $3. And we'll probably have to raise it to $5 now because our costs are going up. Pharmacy fee and $5 shipping. And so you get to see all of it. That is why we're able to change it. They price to market, the price to value, or they make it so opaque that they introduce all these ancillary costs and people don't even get to see what they pay until they walk up to the pharmacy counter.
0: Maybe you've led the question a little bit in that answer, but you know, in healthcare, any innovation comes with pushback, especially if that innovation is able to drive down the price of a healthcare service or drug and driving that price down hurts someone who's keeping that price high today or offering a high price today. Where have you seen the pushback? Has it been from the PBMs? Has it been from the insurance companies? Surely it hasn't been from the patients, but I'm also wondering how much that pushback impacts cost plus drug.
1: The pushback hasn't really hurt us yet. We've got 2.1 million accounts. We're so small, right? That, you know, they keep on waiting for something to go wrong. And at some point, you know, when you run with the elephants, there's the quick and the dead. So we have to be quick. We have to be agile. We have to be able to, to stick to our guns, even whatever they throw at us. The biggest challenge has been from brand manufacturers because Mm -hmm. they have deals with the big PBMs and they have contracts with them that make it very difficult for us, for them to work without all the, the rebates and everything else. And so trying to get through all that contractually. But that said, the generic manufacturers love us to death because... And the brand manufacturers love us as well because they get demonized in the whole discussion about health healthcare economics. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about the price of prescription medications, everybody says it's the damn pharma companies that are ripping us off. You know, that's not the case. It's not that it's never the case, but more often than not, the prices are set by the PBMs. Remember, the PBMs own the insurance companies. And so the higher the retail price, the more they can say to University of Pennsylvania, who they're doing the processing for their insurance, hey, look, the pricing for insulin is thousand dollars a vial, and we're getting it to you for three hundred, giving you a seventy percent discount. Right now, with all the rebates and everything, Lilly, EI Lilly, Novo, all the Santa Fe, all the companies that the big companies that sell insulin, they've already said publicly their net effective revenue is like. $22 or $23. So that, that spread, and it's called spread pricing, that spread goes right into the pockets of the PBMs. You know, whether they're getting you with a rebate directly to the PBM, whether they're getting it with higher insurance premiums, or the insurance company paying the PBM, which owns them a higher price for uh, a medication. I mean, I did a thing for the Mavericks where, um, and we're self-insured, so everything ends up coming out of my pocket. And I'm sure University of Pennsylvania is for, the, for their employees and their, the, the hospital system is as well. But I had our, the Mavs go back, and this is when we're just getting started, and over about 18 months, look at our price for generic drugs at $30 or more. And the total bill was $165,000. Then I went through and I personally looked at the cost plus drugs pricing for those drugs. And instead of $165,000, it would have cost $19,000. And so where we're at now is it's not just about convincing brand manufacturers, which is starting to happen, we're going through contracts there, or more generic manufacturers for more drugs. They love us. Now we're going to self-insured employers like University of Pennsylvania, Indiana University and others and saying, look, why are you playing this game where you're getting ripped off by the insurance companies you're working with? Well, the initial response is because they give us huge rebates. And so when you use the, you know, generically speaking, your university healthcare, and, you know, they're charging a hundred dollars to the insurance company, your premiums are going to help pay rebates back to the university. It's insane. And so we're trying to get these these companies to realize that they're getting ripped off Mm -hmm. and we can save them a boatload of money. I was just at um, Vanderbilt University talking to them and their researchers did a study where they took, I think it was seven urology drugs. That's it, seven urology drugs, and said over the course of one year, if Medicare had bought through us those seven urology drugs, it was like $1.9 billion a year. Wow. It's insane. It is truly insane. But like the movie says, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing everybody he didn't exist, right? Right. The greatest trick PBM's ever pulled was convincing people they were saving money. And they don't. That's originally what their job was. Hey, you know, University of Pennsylvania, Dallas Mavericks, Indiana, you know, Apple, you know, you don't want to be in the business of negotiating with pharma manufacturers. Let us do that for you. But as public companies like to do, they keep on finding new and new new and more sources of revenue. And the more subsidiaries you have and the more tentacles you have out, the more you can push things in those directions and capture little, you know, bits and bytes of revenue that add up to big numbers. If I were a pharmacy benefit manager
0: and I saw you enter the market and cost plus drugs may be small today compared to them, but you know, certainly has the backing and the name recognition to maybe at least prompt a few conversations. I might go talk to generic and brand manufacturers and, you know, maybe make it clear that it wouldn't thrill me for them to be working with you. Is that a dynamic or or are there dynamics like that, that you're starting to see play out? Is that something that's in the way, or at least potentially in the way, of manufacturers who want to partner with you?
1: Yeah, of course. But we're big enough now. You know, when we're first getting started, it's like, sure, Mark Cuban's getting into prescription medicine. Great. Maybe, you know, put it on Shark Tank. Ha ha, 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 ha ha That's why I put my name on the company. It's the only company I've ever put my name on, Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, because I wanted people to know I was committed to it, that I was willing to write the checks. But as we started to take off, we've only been shipping since January 19th, 2022. And here we are, March, you know, 13 months later in a little bit, and we have over 2 million accounts, over 2.1 million accounts that's insane. If you would have asked me January 19th where we'd be 13 months later, I'd say, oh my God, if we hit 400, 500,000 accounts, I'd be jumping up and down. But here we are, 4, or 5x that. You know, We're generating enough revenue for our, our manufacturing partners that they're appreciative. And are, they make more money on us because there's no rebates. There's not all the games being played. And so they prefer to work with us and again and I can't emphasize this enough for for drug manufacturers branded and generic they don't like the idea that they're busting their ass to create drugs or make or manufacture drugs that save lives and they're being demonized as the bad players the bad actors in healthcare economics and I'm out there having conversations like this telling everybody they're not and just that alone is a huge difference that the PBMs can't deal with because they are the ones that are increasing prices.
0: These dynamics in healthcare always become quite illuminating when you dig into the details of who pays what for what and to whom. In your model today, you have this two-sided relationship between manufacturers and customers. Those customers today are individuals looking to buy drugs. It sounds like that may be shifting over time to include self-insured employers and you know, other entities one of the interesting developments I've read about is the plant you're building in Dallas so that Cost Plus Drugs can start to manufacture drugs on your own. Of course, that affords you more control over which types of drugs you develop, the volumes, etc. But I'd be interested to hear more about what kind of opportunities that opens for the company.
1: So kind of a different world from where we're at right now. If you go talk to the doctor's at um, UPenn Medical, right, whatever the hospital system is there. And you say, are there any shortages in injectables? Typically what we sell now are pills or creams, but for injectables. And they'll give you a long list, pitocin, sterile water, all these different things. And those medications are generic. It's just that there's so few people making them that they often go into short supply. So what our manufacturing plan is designed to do, first of all, it's robotics. robotics driven, which means that we can make things quickly, but we can also change over between drugs within a period of four hours. So, what we do is there's a list of drugs that are on the FDA drug shortage list for injectables. And we have permission to make those. So, we look to see what the shortages are going to be or try to anticipate. And the hospital systems already know, you know, historically when there's shortages and this and that, they'll say, okay, we anticipate a shortage here or there. So we'll manufacture it, but it has to go through a quality control process for the FDA for two weeks to make sure that the batches are good. And then we sell it to them. And we'll sell it to them for a whole lot less. Because going back to MBA 101, when there are shortages in an industry, what do people do? Jack up the price. And so because of the, you know, we have to encumber our costs. It's not just okay, a straight cost plus 15% because we had to build this manufacturing plant and have to manage. So we we burn in the cost and then we mark it up 15%. But it's still dramatically cheaper. But even more important than the price is the availability of the medication because we're able to alleviate, we won't be able to alleviate them all, but at least some percentage of it so people are able to get the the medication they need during their surgery. It sounds like the
0: goal for this factory more so than increasing the volume of drugs that are already being produced is more to fill in those gaps where the supply and demand economics aren't putting manufacturers and others in a position to want to invest in these things but given that you have these partners already given that you could put a product order in you could work with them to start developing these drugs you know the robotics nature of this the ability to turn over the factory so quickly is really interesting why not try to continue working with the manufacturing partners you have to do this especially knowing the dynamic of now that you are all are building this factory You're not really the competitor of generic manufacturers, but it looks a little bit closer to that than it would have otherwise with you as the partner in the middle.
1: Well, there's shortages by definition, right? If we could just partner with manufacturers, they already would have done it. And so um, the issue is that there just isn't the capacity out there to do it. it. It's not a simple process. And there's nobody that we know of yet anyways, where they've invested to the extent that we have. To be able to turn based off of shortages in the market at any given point in time. That's the big difference. When you do that build versus buy analysis, I'm taking the path of least resistance every single time. And so if we were able to just go and buy, hell yes. You know, We actually looked at making our own insulin and we spent a few million dollars doing our own Glargine and all this shit, I don't even know. But it got to the point where it was very obvious that prices were coming down and other people were entering the market. So we, we walked away from that.
0: In that build versus buy conversation, it's pretty clear from your website that Truepill is a pretty integral partner for Cost Plus Drugs. Can you tell me more about that connection, what they provide for you, and you know, why you decided that building wasn't the right decision, by buying was, and why they were the right partner for Cost Plus Drugs once you got to that decision?
1: The process, the supply chain, is very software-driven, and they already had the software. Mm -hmm. And so the the time to market doing the front end website is pretty straightforward, but doing everything behind that to ingest a prescription, have pharmacists in place to check them, making sure that all the things that are required to get patients everything that they need, again, build versus buy, it didn't make sense for us to recreate it. Now, we're growing so fast. You know, there's things now that we'll start moving internally to complement TruePill and working with other vendors because it's tough for anybody to keep up with the growth curve that we're on.
0: So it sounds like they're handling a lot of the infrastructure and the process of actually getting drugs from the manufacturer to patients directly.
1: We'll, we'll buy it, we'll do the negotiation, we'll ship it to TruePill. They know our costs. TruePill becomes the wholesaler or the reseller at that point in time, the pharmacy. And then they have their pharmacist in place to check everything, ship it out to the patient. Do you worry at all when you're partnering with
0: a venture backed startup in a market where everyone's valuations are taking a hit, where capital is harder to come by than it was two years ago? You know, there is the risk, TruPol has done very well, but there's always the risk that they are, you know, subject to the same capital markets all these other companies in the health tech industry are. And this is an issue across the digital health industry. Do you worry at all that, you know, reliance on them puts you in a less autonomous position to solve those problems?
1: Of course. But, you know, knock on wood, I can always just write a check, (laughs) you know, so I'm a true believer. You plan for the worst and hope for the best. And, you know, if the shit hits the fan, what are your options and what are you going to do? And, you know, I'm in a position where I can write a check. So I know what their monthly burn is, you know, (laughs) so if, if it comes down to that. But as I said, you know they've done a great job. But we have to hedge our bets as well, just because at our growth rate. So you know, by having the ability to you know be side by side, and there's all kinds of ways you have to do things. And Alex knows that stuff a lot better than I do. But you know, we'll do what we have to do.
0: I'm sure there's someone at Truepill who is hopefully listening to this podcast and thrilled to hear. And trust me. Yeah, it's not like <laughs> oh, we didn't know that. No, they know. <laughs> um, you know, we've we've talked about competitors a little bit and what that means. Clearly, you know, pharmacy benefit managers more so than the manufacturers are the ones being disrupted here. But when you see something like Amazon RX pass in the market, is that a competitor? Is that more of a fellow traveler with a similar goal that you're excited to see in
1: the market? Is it a little bit of both? Both, obviously. depending on where they go. I've competed with big companies my entire life. Always being you know an entrepreneur, starting things, there's always going to be you know, in the technology industry, over the years, you're always competing with Microsoft. Now you're always competing with Amazon. At some level, there's competition. There's competition. That's just, you know, the nature of the beast. So it's fine, right? So they can come in big enough to get in, but big enough to leave <laughs> really, really <laughs> fast as well. And so when you look at their offering, it's great if if, if you're um, a Prime subscriber, which you know, 100 plus million people are. But at the same time, it's really geared towards repetitive refills and They want you to be reordering every month. Well, that's not how most of our patients buy from us. Our pricing goes down the more volume you buy, right? In other words, if you get if you have a prescription, you buy for 30 days, but it's something you're gonna need all the time, right? I take generic synthroid, tyranson. And so I need all the time. But if I can buy 60 or 90 or 180, that's what I do because the price goes down. They don't have that option, so we're still cheaper with everything involved. And plus The other side of it is um, mail order isn't for everybody, you know, and there's certain medications that aren't a a great fit for mail order. And so we're in the process of rolling out an affiliate pharmacy network so that um, we're, we're doing a beta right now with some pharmacies in Bloomington, Indiana, in Dallas, Texas, and adding, you know, a couple other markets in New Jersey, et cetera, where you'll be able to take a prescription, sign up with us and walk into any of these pharmacies and just pick things up.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. And that pharmacy partnership, you know, I mean, there are to our earlier point, they're all owned by the same groups
1: that own the PBMs and vice versa. There's the big three with the big retail chains, and then there's the independent pharmacies, and there's thousands and thousands of those, right? They're not fans of the way the PBMs work either mm-hmm. because they've really face so many fees and clawbacks, and the big threes have this discount card company they work with. And if you walk in with that discount card, the independent pharmacy literally has to pay for the right to fill that prescription. The idea is, well, we're sending you traffic, and they're going to buy toilet paper and Advil. You know, whereas with us, we're saying right now we charge eight dollars. You know, three dollar pharmacy, five dollar shipping. You charge the same thing to the patient, and you keep it. That's all yours. You price is the same. We make our fifteen percent from that. They make more on the spread because they can buy cheaper sometimes, and they make the eight dollars. So you know, we want all the independent pharmacies that we work with to be successful because we think that having that personal touch and having that personal interaction and the you know all the skill sets of, of pharmacists is critically important to healthcare. Do
0: you think the last thought on Amazon and RxPass and products like that, I mean, they're obviously a publicly traded company, that product has to deliver outsized returns as with any investment they make. In some ways, they have a similar pricing system to cost plus drugs, but with a very different set of governance and incentives. Do you think that on its own, RxPass makes sense from a business perspective? Do you think that
1: has to be driving some other part of the business? Of course it's part of the business, right? I mean, look, it's smart. Look at all the investments that they're making in healthcare, from Philpac to MedOne or whatever it is, right? Nobody dies healthy. Every person on the planet needs medical support at one level or the other. And so in many respects, it truly is a Trojan horse. And so we've got to be dynamic and we've got to be agile, and we've got to, like I said, when you run with the elephants, you've got to be quick, and so that's what we'll be and so i don't I don't have any problem with what they're doing, but to your point as a public company, if it doesn't return what they expect it to, they can easily walk away and create other concerns
0: in thinking about cost plus drug structure, there are a couple really interesting pieces of this, one of which you mentioned, which is that your name is on it and I searched high and low. And to your point, I did not find any other business that has your name on it. And at the same time, you incorporated Cost Plus Drugs as a public benefit corporation, which allows board members to make decisions on behalf of the company that account for the broader stakeholder world instead of just corporate shareholders. I'd love to hear more about those two decisions, why the public benefit corporation, and in that sense, why a for-profit company at all maybe is the the more interesting decision between nonprofit and public benefit corporation.
1: So just the rules for nonprofits are so different in terms of who you can and can't deal with, who you can have financial relationships with. In the traditional nonprofit, they don't want people taking advantage of no tax status, right? Plus, we want to make money. I got no problem making money. I I want to make money on this so I can reinvest in it and go bigger and badder, right? If I'm going to compete with Amazon, it can't just be about okay, how much am I subsidizing this? It's going to have to be, okay, our model has got to be better than theirs. And we have to have a better relationship and more trust from our customers as to why public benefit corporation, because I wanted people to know for certain that while we want to be profitable, it's not our only motivation. We're not like the PBMs, we're not like others in this industry. We truly want to have an enormous impact on pricing for patients and availability for patients. And so, you know, by putting my name on it, by being a PBC. We think that sends the message that we want to do this. And honestly, one of the things that we looked at was taking a third of the company and allocating 330 million shares so that there would be one share for every resident of the United States of America. And so (laughs) we just couldn't find a way to make it work. But it's something that I've looked at for multiple companies, because I think if you're going to have an impact on income equality, doing insane things like that is, is one simple way to do it. Yeah,
0: everyone could own their their share of cost plus drugs along with their share of the Green Bay Packers and
1: Right. You know, so for Alex, there's your one share. You can't sell it for ten years, but if it appreciates in value and we're ever to the point where we can return dividends, or I don't anticipate ever selling this, but you know, where there's an economic incentive or return, how cool would that be?
0: Yeah. And the capital structure in the business and I mean something like liquidity at some point for a business that is intentionally capping its profits is a really interesting question. I mean, today, beyond yourself, is there outside capital in the business? What sort of expectations could they possibly have?
1: So Alex had some investors before me. So there's, quote unquote, there is outside capital, but it's minimal. And I've had offers from people to put capital in. I've said no, because I've been clear. I I don't know if we'll ever write you a check. Our mission is to fuck up pharmacy, and that's going to be expensive, and it's not necessarily going to create a great return. That said... It doesn't mean it won't. I'm a huge capitalist, but I also believe in compassionate capitalism. And I I believe that being a capitalist means busting your ass to find the outcomes that accomplish the mission that you have. And if I was 25 or 35 years old, my mission would have been to make a fuckload of money off of this, right? But I'm not in that position anymore. And so I don't, my next dollar is not going to change my life, my kids' life, their kids' lives you know, I'm lucky. And the mission as a capitalist is to truly try to change the cost and the outcomes for healthcare. And you don't want to take other people's money, at least not at this point where we're at. Does that limit what expansion
0: for cost plus drugs might look like? You know, a company like this, I think would go out and they would say, we want to make this big pivot. We want to build factories. We want to work with brand manufacturers. You know, but that requires capital. Is that just always going to have to be something that either you personally are going to decide that it's worthwhile for the business or you're going to focus on other things?
1: No, I mean, like any business as an entrepreneur, you take things as they come, right? And you try to plan. But, you know, the only thing that's ever going to be wrong as an entrepreneur is your business plan and your projections. That's the guaranteed part that's always going to be wrong. And so I really try to be agile. And I try to be informed and I try to be prepared. And so when things zig, I'll zig. And if things zag, I'll zag and we'll see where it takes us. But the more direct answer to your question is, if I thought that I could have an outsized impact by raising capital, I would. Because I think there's enough other people out there that would be willing to contribute with the same mission, right? The same capitalistic goal of, of having an impact the way that we're trying to have.
0: So, what does that next frontier look like for cost plus drugs? Is it just continuing to build on what you're executing on today on the generic and on the brand side? What might that next you know phase of the company look like?
1: Well, there's another three hundred million people who aren't customers yet trying to change that and to you know the kind of the mission is to be a primary source for every medication we're legally allowed to sell. And so adding more medications, you know changing it so they're hopefully much cheaper. There's specialty medications like we alluded to earlier that there, there really are no ways for patients to pay for them. There are games being played by the insurers in terms of those high priced drugs. So there, is, there will be no shortage of ways for us to try to have an impact going forward. And the manufacturers want us to. You know, at 2 million lives covered, if you will, okay, we, we can have an impact. But if we're at 100 million, now we not only have an impact, but we have some weight behind us to really influence where things go. And we'll see where that takes us. You know, given your background
0: in media and entertainment and technology, this pivot to healthcare generally, let alone, you know, something like pharmaceutical distribution is not an obvious one for someone with your background. And to your point, I'm sure plenty of people, as they have for very successful technologists who have tried to make the pivot into healthcare, have looked at that and said, well, this is a different ballgame. The regulatory space, the incentives at play are just too complicated. What do you think entrepreneurs looking to pivot into healthcare to take that success in technology or elsewhere and bring it to an industry where they feel they can have a real impact, what do you think they need to know and what do they have to have in place to be successful in that pivot?
1: Transparency. When you walk into a new industry, you want to do something that doesn't exist. You want to have some leverage that the incumbents are not able to use because it distorts everything for them, right? Or they're unable to react. Transparency. Open your books. Make realizations that there are constructs of the healthcare industry, like insurance, that don't belong. Healthcare insurance is dead. They just don't know it yet because you can't serve the two masters that they're trying to serve, full profitability and the interest of patients. You can pretend, but you can't be transparent and do that. And so by introducing radical transparency and just showing as much as you possibly can to your consumers, you start building trust, and that's the greatest missing link within the healthcare industry is trust. You know, I told you as I was getting into healthcare before Cost Plus, I was paying for different studies or trying to do studies in some cases. I tried to do a study where we went to the biggest hospitals and asked their CFOs what accounting systems they use and how they did their cost accounting. No one would participate. When you look at MedPAC reports, this organization that help, helps deal with Medicare pricing. You look at the industry and they always tell MedPAC at Medicare pricing we lose eight to nine percent. And then you ask them, What's your cost? I don't know. Well, how do you know you lose eight or nine percent? And then I did a deal where I said, Okay, let's take Toronto and Manhattan. Real estate's the same, payroll's the same, you pay your doctors the same in both countries, currencies are close enough, cost of a band-aid's the same. And actually, real estate's a little bit more expensive in Toronto. What are the things that make it so that the top 35 procedures in a Toronto hospital, which is break-even to profitable, are dramatically cheaper than Medicare? There's a list of things that make a difference, but those aren't the things that U.S.-based hospitals want to do. I have a friend that runs a hospital, and he asked me about certain things going on, and you know they were all proud of this new building. And they were asking me, what do you think we should do to market this? Are you good at marketing now in healthcare? I'm like, sell that building. Because you're proud of the way the building looks and you're proud of what it represents, but it represents everything wrong with healthcare. Because building more buildings that are fancy doesn't make anybody any healthier. Now you might say it makes people more confident, more comfortable in what we're doing and it's brand. That's not the best way to do it. There's a thousand other ways to to reach that same goal. But it's just not aligned. That's just not the way things are aligned. You look at the ACA, Ezekiel Manuel, right there with you guys did a lot of great things and it saved hundreds of billions of dollars. But the reality is the give that they had to make medical loss ratio, right? And so you have to be at right around 15% for the insurance companies. Well, 15% of a bigger number is a bigger number. So they have every incentive to keep on raising the top line. And that's exactly what they do. And so there's all these disincentives and all these misalignments between patient and corporation that create enormous opportunities. But you better be transparent because if if I have any impact at all, it's going to be making things far more transparent because that is the differentiator that will drive improvements in healthcare more than anything. The only thing I would add as a closing, please, everybody out there, go to costplusdrugs.com, put in whatever medication you take, your parents take, your friends take, see if we have it. Compare our price to what they're paying right now or you're paying right now. We'll save you money. If you know anybody at UPenn that is in the pharmacy group, tell them to check out our pricing. We'll reduce the cost for your students. And if you know any doctors out there, tell them to check us out as well. You just have to use your EMR system and just put in Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs and we prescribe really easy.
0: Mark, thank you so much for joining me on The Pulse today. I really appreciate your time.
1: I appreciate it. It was fun. I enjoyed it.